Section four of A Prince of Swindlers by Guy Boothby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. A Prince of Swindlers by Guy Boothby. Chapter three, part two. Next morning, while he was dressing, Belton reported that the two artificers desired an interview with him. He ordered them to be admitted, and forthwith they entered the room. It was noticeable that Wajib Baksh carried in his hand a heavy box, which he placed upon the table. "'Have you thought over the matter?' he asked, seeing that the men waited for him to speak. "'We have thought of it,' replied Hiram Singh, who always acted as spokesman for the pair. "'If the presence will deign to look,' he will see that we have made a box of the size and shape as he drew upon the paper yes it is certainly a good copy said carne condescendingly after he had examined it wajib baksh showed his white teeth in appreciation of the compliment and hiram singh drew closer to the table and now if the sahab will open it he will in his wisdom be able to tell if it resembles the other that he has in his mind carne opened the box as requested and discovered that the interior was an exact counterfeit of the Duchess of Wiltshire's jewel case, even to the extent of the quilted leather lining, which had been the other's principal feature. He admitted that the likeness was all that could be desired. As he is satisfied, said Hiram Singh, it may be that the protector of the poor will deign to try an experiment with it. See, here is a comb. Let it be placed in the box, so... Now he will see what he will see. The broad silver-backed comb, lying upon his dressing-table, was placed on the bottom of the box. The lid was closed and the key turned in the lock. The case being securely fastened, Hiram Singh laid it before his master. I am to open it, I suppose, said Carne, taking the key and replacing it in the lock. If my master pleases, replied the other. Carne accordingly turned it in the lock, and having done so, raised the lid and looked inside. His astonishment was complete. To all intents and purposes, the box was empty. The comb was not to be seen, and yet the quilted sides and bottom were to all appearances just the same as when he had first looked inside. This is most wonderful, he said, and indeed it was as clever a conjuring trick as any he had ever seen. "'Nay, it is very simple,' Wajib Baksh replied. "'The heaven-born told me that there must be no risk of detection.' He took the box in his own hands, and, running his nails down the centre of the quilting, divided the false bottom into two pieces. These he lifted out, revealing the comb lying upon the real bottom beneath. "'The sides, as my lord will see,' said Hiram Singh, taking a step forward, are held in their appointed places by these two springs. Thus, when the key is turned, the springs relax, and the sides are driven by others into their places on the bottom, where the seams in the quilting mask the joint. There is but one disadvantage. It is as follows. When the pieces which form the bottom are lifted out in order, that my lord may get at whatever lies concealed beneath, the springs must of necessity stand revealed. However, to any one who knows sufficient of the working of the box to lift out the false bottom, it will be an easy matter to withdraw the springs and conceal them about his person. As you say, that is an easy matter, 
said Carne, and I shall not be likely to forget. Now, one other question. Presuming I am in a position to put the real box into your hands for, say, eight hours, do you think that in that time you can fit it up so that detection will be impossible? Assuredly, my lord, replied Hiram Singh with conviction. There is but the lock and the fitting of the springs to be done. Three hours at most would suffice for that. I am pleased with you, said Carne. As a proof of my satisfaction, when the work is finished, you will each receive five hundred rupees. Now you can go. According to his promise, ten o'clock on the Friday following, found him in his hansom, driving towards Belgrave Square. He was a little anxious, though the casual observer would scarcely have been able to tell it. The magnitude of the stake for which he was playing was enough to try the nerve of even such a past master in his profession as Simon Carne. Arriving at the house, he discovered some workmen erecting an awning across the footway in preparation for the ball that was to take place at night. It was not long, however, before he found himself in the boudoir, reminding her grace of her promise to permit him an opportunity of making a drawing of the famous jewel case. The Duchess was naturally busy, and within a quarter of an hour he was on his way home, with the box placed on the seat of the carriage beside him. Now, he said as he patted it good-humouredly, if only the notion worked out by Hiram Singh and Wajib Baksh holds good, the famous Wiltshire diamonds will become my property before very many hours are passed. By this time tomorrow, I suppose, London will be all agog concerning the burglary. On reaching his house, he left his carriage and himself carried the box into his study. Once there, he rang his bell and ordered Hiram Singh and Wajib Baksh to be sent to him. When they arrived, he showed them the box upon which they were to exercise their ingenuity. "'Bring your tools in here,' he said, "'and do the work under my own eyes. "'You have but nine hours before you, "'so you must make the most of them.' The men went for their implements, and as soon as they were ready, set to work. All through the day they were kept hard at it, with the result that by five o'clock the alterations had been effected, and the case stood ready. By the time Carne returned from his afternoon drive in the park, it was quite prepared for the part it was to play in his scheme. Having praised the men, he turned them out and locked the door, then went across the room and unlocked a drawer in his writing table. From it he took a flat leather jewel case, which he opened. It contained a necklace of counterfeit diamonds, if anything a little larger than the one he intended to try to obtain. He had purchased it that morning in the Burlington Arcade for the purpose of testing the apparatus his servants had made, and this he now proceeded to do. Laying it carefully upon the bottom, he closed the lid and turned the key. When he opened it again, the necklace was gone, and even though he knew the secret, he could not for the life of him see where the false bottom began and ended. After that, he reset the trap and tossed the necklace carelessly in. To his delight, it acted as well as on the previous occasion. He could scarcely contain his satisfaction. His conscience was sufficiently elastic to give him no trouble. To him it was scarcely a robbery he was planning, but an artistic trial of skill, in which he pitied his wits and cunning against the forces of society in general. At half-past seven he dined, and afterwards smoked a meditative cigar over the evening paper in the billiard-room. The invitations to the ball were for ten o'clock, 
and at nine-thirty he went to his dressing-room. "'Make me tidy as quickly as you can,' he said to Belton when the latter appeared. "'And while you are doing so, listen to my final instructions. "'Tonight, as you know, I am endeavouring to secure the Duchess of Wiltshire's necklace. "'Tomorrow all London will resound with the hubbub, "'and I have been making my plans in such a way as to arrange "'that Climo shall be the first person consulted. "'When the messenger calls, if call he does,' See that the old woman next door bids him tell the duke to come personally at twelve o'clock. Do you understand? Perfectly, sir. Very good. Now give me the jewel case and let me be off. You need not sit up for me. Precisely as the clocks in the neighbourhood were striking ten, Simon Carne reached Belgrave Square, and, as he hoped, found himself the first guest. His hostess and her husband received him in the ante-room of the drawing-room. "'I come laden with a thousand apologies,' he said as he took her grace's hand, and bent over it with that ceremonious politeness which was one of the man's chief characteristics. "'I am most unconscionably early, I know, but I hastened here in order that I might personally return the jewel-case you so kindly lent me. I must trust to your generosity to forgive me. The drawings took longer than I expected.' "'Please do not apologise, answered her grace. "'It is very kind of you to have brought the case yourself. "'I hope the illustrations have proved successful. "'I shall look forward to seeing them as soon as they are ready. "'But I am keeping you holding the box. "'One of my servants will take it to my room.' "'She called a footman to her and bade him take the box "'and place it upon her dressing-table. "'Before it goes,' I must let you see that I have not damaged it either externally or internally, said Carne with a laugh. It is such a valuable case that I should never forgive myself if it had even received a scratch during the time it has been in my possession. So saying, he lifted the lid and allowed her to look inside. To all appearances, it was exactly the same as when she had lent it to him earlier in the day. You have been most careful, she said, and then with an air of banter, she continued, if you desire it, I shall be pleased to give you a certificate to that effect. They jested in this fashion for a few moments after the servant's departure, during which time Carne promised to call upon her the following morning at eleven o'clock, and to bring with him the illustrations he had made, and a queer little piece of china he had had the good fortune to pick up in a dealer's shop the previous afternoon. By this time, fashionable London was making its way up the grand staircase, and with its appearance, Further conversation became impossible. Shortly after midnight, Carne bade his hostess good night and slipped away. He was perfectly satisfied with his evening's entertainment, and if the key of the jewel case were not turned before the jewels were placed in it, he was convinced they would become his property. It speaks well for his strength of nerve when I record the fact that on going to bed his slumbers were as peaceful and untroubled as those of a little child. Breakfast was scarcely over next morning before a hansom drew up at his front door and Lord Amberley alighted. He was ushered into Carne's presence forthwith and on seeing that the latter was surprised at his early visit, hastened to explain. My dear fellow, he said, as he took possession of the chair the other offered him, I have come round to see you on most important business. As I told you last night at the dance, when you so kindly asked me to come and see the steam yacht you have purchased, I had an appointment with Wiltshire at half-past nine this morning. On reaching Belgrave Square, I found the whole house in confusion. 
Servants were running hither and thither with scared faces. The butler was on the borders of lunacy. The Duchess was well-nigh hysterical in her boudoir, while her husband was in his study, vowing vengeance against all the world. "'You alarm me,' said Carne, lighting a cigarette with a hand that was as steady as a rock. "'What on earth has happened?' "'I think I might safely allow you fifty guesses, and then wager a hundred pounds you'd not hit the mark. And yet, in a certain measure, it concerns you.' "'Concerns me? Good gracious!' "'What have I done to bring all this about?' "'Pray do not look so alarmed,' said Amberley. "'Personally, you have done nothing. "'Indeed, on second thoughts, "'I don't know that I am right in saying "'that it concerns you at all. "'The fact of the matter is, Carne, "'a burglary took place at Wiltshire House, "'and the famous necklace has disappeared. "'Good heavens, you don't say so. "'But I do. "'The circumstances of the case are as follows. "'When my cousin retired to her room last night "'after the ball,' She unclasped the necklace, and in her husband's presence, placed it carefully in her jewel-case, which she locked. That having been done, Wiltshire took the box to the room which contained the safe, and himself placed it there, locking the iron door with his own key. The room was occupied that night, according to custom, by the butler and one of the footmen, both of whom have been in the family since they were boys. Next morning after breakfast, the Duke unlocked the safe and took out the box, intending to convey it to the bank as usual. Before leaving, however, he placed it on his study table and went upstairs to speak to his wife. He cannot remember exactly how long he was absent, but he feels convinced that he was not gone more than a quarter of an hour at the very utmost. Their conversation finished, she accompanied him downstairs, where she saw him take up the case to carry it to his carriage. Before he left the house, however, she said, I suppose you have looked to see that the necklace is all right. How could I do so, was his reply. You know you possess the only key that will fit it. She felt in her pockets, but to her surprise, the key was not there. If I were a detective, I should say that that is a point to be remembered, said Carne with a smile. Pray, where did she find her keys? Upon her dressing table, said Amberley though she has not the slightest recollection of leaving them there. Well, when she had produced the keys, what happened? Why, they opened the box, and to their astonishment and dismay, found it empty. The jewels were gone. Good gracious, what a terrible loss. It seems almost impossible that it can be true. And pray, what did they do? At first they stood staring into the empty box, hardly believing the evidence of their own eyes. Stare how they would, however, they could not bring them back. The jewels had, without doubt, disappeared. But when and where the robbery had taken place, it was impossible to say. After that, they had up all the servants and questioned them. But the result was what they might have foreseen. No one, from the butler to the kitchen-maid, could throw any light upon the subject. To this minute, it remains as great a mystery as when they first discovered it. I am more concerned than I can tell you, said Carne. How thankful I ought to be that I returned the case to her grace last night. But in thinking of myself, I am forgetting to ask what has brought you to me. If I can be of any assistance, I hope you will command me. Well, I'll tell you why I have come, replied Lord Amberley. Naturally, they are most anxious to have the mystery solved, and the jewels recovered as soon as possible. Wiltshire wanted to send to Scotland Yard there and then, but his wife and I eventually persuaded him to consult Clemo. 
as you know if the police authorities are called in first he refuses the business altogether now we thought as you are his next-door neighbour you might possibly be able to assist us you may be very sure my lord i will do everything that lies in my power let us go and see him at once as he spoke he rose and threw what remained of his cigarette into the fireplace his visitor having imitated his example they procured their hats and walked round from park lane into belverton street to bring up at number one after they had rung the bell the door was opened to them by the old woman who invariably received the detective's clients is mr Climo at home asked carne and if so can we see him the old lady was a little deaf and the question had to be repeated before she could be made to understand what was wanted as soon however as she realized their desire she informed them that her master was absent from town but would be back as usual at twelve o'clock to meet his clients what on earth to be done said the earl looking at his companion in dismay i'm afraid i can't come back again as i have a most important appointment at that hour do you think you could entrust the business to me asked carne if so i will make a point of seeing him at twelve o'clock and could call at wiltshire house afterwards and tell the duke what i have done that's very good of you replied amberley if you are sure it would not put you to too much trouble that would be quite the best thing to be done i will do it with pleasure carne replied i feel it my duty to help in whatever way i can you are very kind said the other then as i understand it you are to call up climo at twelve o'clock and afterwards let my cousins know what you have succeeded in doing i only hope he will help us to secure the thief we are having too many of these burglaries just now i must catch this hansom and be off good-bye and many thanks good-bye said carne and shook him by the hand the hansom having rolled away carne retraced his steps to his own abode it is really very strange he muttered as he walked along how often chance condescends to lend her assistance to my little schemes the mere fact that his grace left the box unwatched in his study for a quarter of an hour may serve to throw the police off on quite another scent i am also glad that they decided to open the case in the house for if it had gone to the bankers and had been placed in the strong room unexamined i should never have been able to get possession of the jewels at all three hours later he drove to wiltshire house and saw the duke the duchess was far too upset by the catastrophe to see any one this is really most kind of you mr carne said his grace when the other had supplied an elaborate account of his interview with climo we are extremely indebted to you i am sorry he cannot come before ten o'clock to-night and that he makes this stipulation of my seeing him alone for i must confess i should like to have had someone else present to ask any questions that might escape me but if that's his usual hour and custom well we must abide by it that's all i hope he will do some good for this is the greatest calamity that has ever befallen me as i told you just now it has made my wife quite ill she is confined to her bedroom and quite hysterical you do not suspect any one i suppose inquired carne not a soul the other answered the thing is such a mystery that we do not know what to think i feel convinced however that my servants are as innocent as i am nothing will ever make me think them otherwise i wish i could catch the fellow that's all i'd make him suffer for the trick he's played me carne offered an appropriate reply and after a little further conversation upon the subject bade the irate nobleman good-bye and left the house 
from belgrave square he drove to one of the clubs of which he had been elected a member in search of lord orpington with whom he had promised to lunch and afterwards took him to a shipbuilder's yard near greenwich in order to show him the steam yacht he had lately purchased it was close upon dinner-time before he returned to his own residence he brought lord orpington with him and they dined in state together at nine o'clock the latter bade him good-bye and at ten carne retired to his dressing-room and rang for belton what have you to report he asked with regard to what i bade you do in belgrave square i followed your instructions to the letter belton replied yesterday morning i wrote to messrs horniblow and jinison the house agents in piccadilly in the name of colonel braithwaite and asked for an order to view the residence to the right of wiltshire house i asked that the order might be sent direct to the house where the colonel would get it upon his arrival this letter i posted myself in basingstoke as you desired me to do at nine o'clock yesterday morning i dressed myself as much like an elderly army officer as possible and took a cab to belgrave square the caretaker an old fellow of close upon seventy years of age admitted me immediately upon hearing my name and proposed that he should show me over the house this however i told him was quite unnecessary backing my speech with a present of half a crown whereupon he returned to his breakfast perfectly satisfied while i wandered about the house at my own leisure reaching the same floor as that upon which is situated the room in which the duke's safe is kept i discovered that your supposition was quite correct and that it would be possible for a man by opening the window to make his way along the coping from one house to the other without being seen i made certain that there was no one in the bedroom in which the butler slept and then arranged the long telescope walking-stick you gave me and fixed one of my boots to it by means of the screw in the end with this i was able to make a regular succession of footsteps in the dust along the ledge between one window and the other that done i went downstairs again bade the caretaker good morning and got into my cab from belgrave square i drove to the shop of the pawnbroker whom you told me you had discovered was out of town his assistant inquired my business and was anxious to do what he could for me i told him however that i must see his master personally as it was about the sale of some diamonds i had had left me i pretended to be annoyed that he was not at home and muttered to myself so that the man could hear something about its meaning a journey to amsterdam then i limped out of the shop paid off my cab and walking down a by-street removed my moustache and altered my appearance by taking off my greatcoat and muffler a few streets further on i purchased a bowler hat in place of the old-fashioned topper i had hitherto been wearing and then took a cab from piccadilly and came home you have fulfilled my instructions admirably said carne and if the business comes off as i expect it will you shall receive your usual percentage now i must be turned into climo and be off to belgrave square to put his grace of wiltshire upon the track of this burglar before he retired to rest that night simon carne took something wrapped in a red silk handkerchief from the capacious pocket of the coat climo had been wearing a few moments before having unrolled the covering he held up to the light the magnificent necklace which for so many years had been the joy and pride of the ducal house of wiltshire the electric light played upon it and touched it with a thousand different hues where so many have failed he said to himself as he wrapped it in the handkerchief again and locked it in his safe it is pleasant to be able to congratulate oneself on having succeeded it is without its equal 
and I don't think I shall be overstepping the mark if I say that I think when she receives it, Liz will be glad she lent me the money. Next morning, all London was astonished by the news that the famous Wiltshire diamonds had been stolen, and a few hours later, Carne learnt from an evening paper that the detectives who had taken up the case, upon the supposed retirement from it of Climo, were still completely at fault. That evening he was to entertain several friends to dinner. They included Lord Amberley, Lord Orpington, and a prominent member of the Privy Council. Lord Amberley arrived late, but filled to overflowing with importance. His friends noticed his state and questioned him. Well, gentlemen, he answered, as he took up a commanding position upon the drawing-room hearthrug, I am in a position to inform you that Climo has reported upon the case, and the upshot of it is that the Wiltshire diamond mystery is a mystery no longer. What do you mean? asked the others in a chorus. I mean that he sent in his report to Wiltshire this afternoon, as arranged. From what he has said the other night, after being alone in the room with the empty jewel case and a magnifying glass for two minutes or so, he was in a position to describe the modus operandi, and what is more, to put the police on the scent of the burglar. And how was it worked? asked Carne. From the empty house next door, replied the other. On the morning of the burglary, a man, purporting to be a retired army officer, called with an order to view, got the caretaker out of the way, clambered along to Wiltshire House by means of the parapet outside, reached the room during the time the servants were at breakfast, opened the safe, and abstracted the jewels. But how did Climo find all this out? asked Lord Orpington. By his own inimitable cleverness, replied Lord Amberley. At any rate, it has been proved that he was correct. The man did make his way from next door, and the police have since discovered that an individual, answering to the description given, visited a pawnbroker's shop in the city about an hour later, and stated that he had diamonds to sell. If that is so, it turns out to be a very simple mystery after all, said Lord Orpington as they began their meal. Thanks to the ingenuity of the cleverest detective in the world, remarked Amberley. In that case, here's a good health to Climo, said the Privy Councillor, raising his glass. I will join you in that, said Simon Carne. Here's a very good health to Climo and his connection with the Duchess of Wiltshire's diamonds. May he always be equally successful. Hear, hear to that, replied his guests. End of section four. End of chapter three.